0: inform advocate and involve seniors in discussing important social issues in short these podcasts will help us you in creating an age-friendly city for vancouver today tomorrow the world you can hear us everywhere podcasts are heard hello and welcome to powered by age this is our thursday first thursday in women's International History and Heritage Month. And I'm Charlotte Farrell, the host. And today we're going to be talking about, we choose to challenge new ways, alternative ways of making money. And Leslie and Nancy have some special presentations. I'm going to talk a bit about that. Chris, actually, everybody that's on, has something they can share about new ways they're making money. And Joel is on the line. So I don't we'll know start. about that.
1: <laughs> I'm still looking. I'm still looking.
2: Well, it's new ways. It doesn't necessarily always make money, right?
1: That's right. <laughs> that said, I've got some interesting stuff I'm working on. So I'll share that in a sec,
0: but go on. Okay. We'll, we'll start with, uh, well, first just introduce yourself, starting with Nancy, then Leslie and Chris.
3: Oh, hi, I'm Nancy Sinclair and I live on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, beautiful BC. Yes, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> Me too. I'm, well, I don't live there, but I'm here.
3: Oh, there I'm you go. In, <laughs> there you go.
1: Vancouver Island.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, wherever
1: that is. To, <laughs> wherever that is in Zoom land, it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of irrelevant, but yeah. Anyway, go on. Sorry.
3: Zoom room everywhere. <laughs> have a variety of interests, outdoors being one of them in particular, and a writer and focusing on encouraging myself, inspiring myself to keep writing, and pet sitting. I'm, I'm a pet sitter and, and a pet sitting business that I've been focusing on for the last seven years and have a lot of fun with that. It's been affected quite a bit with COVID, but I sure enjoy the opportunity to hang out with all these little pups and, and get outside and
0: then enjoy the fresh air every day. So that's me. Okay, and she's going to be telling us a little bit more later about what she does to make this business special and how long she's had it going. Leslie? Leslie? Uh, yes, I'm Leslie Hebert, I
2: live in New Westminster, and I'm actually very excited right now because next Thursday evening at 6 o'clock is going to be the launch of a poetry book that's been put together by our Poet Laureate. Um, it's called New Westminster Poetry of Place, and I have a poem featured in that collection. Mm. Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. Mm.
4: Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Chris? Uh, I'm Chris Marcy, and I live in East Vancouver and I participate in Britannia community center and I'm with a group called Quirky, the queer imaging and writing collective for elders. We're not too fussy about how we spell words like writing <laughs> because we have to make it all fit quirky. Um, and, um, we just uh, last week we just had the launch of I think our seventh our seventh anthology. So we did a Zoom launch with SFU with uh, Women and Gender Studies. Uh, it's their fiftieth anniversary. So we joined with them to do the launch of of our latest anthology. So that's me, and I'm currently I'm I'm currently in uh, Holy Family Hospital in in rehab. So sometimes you might see people walking behind me or things happening <laughs> over which I have no control. <laughs> uh, Joel?
1: I'm Joel and I'm with Podstream Studios, partners with uh, One Senior Center and helping produce these podcasts and technical support uh, on several areas of the One Senior Center. And um, I've been in Campbell River for an extended period of time still. Meant to get back over fairly quickly, and uh, yeah, probably, I don't know, within the next week or so, I would say, uh, stuff at the studio i got to take care of, but over here, getting some work done on a PhD, and uh, a recording project, which I can talk about uh, at the point where we're sharing our our stories, so that'll be interesting when you hear what snuck up out of nowhere while I've been over here, and I'm trying to get it finished off before I go back, because I'd like to get that done in a way so
0: okay so we'll go back up to hearing about nancy's pet sitting and care business
3: oh thank you um so it's happiest pup um pet sitting services and so i started and it wasn't under the same name when i first started when i first started pet sitting business it's about seven years ago and it came from that whole outage of you know what is it I love to do that I'm passionate about, whether I was making money at it or not, and what would that be? And I have a, a huge love of of dogs. I've had dogs, you know, my whole life, sort of thing. And and I'm very um, blessed. I have a a gift of being able to connect with dogs, and and they just there's just just a deep deep connection. So they trust me. They listen to me. They heed. They they just they just connect very deeply. And so I started pet sitting and um, and dog walking, and one of and I'm very active. I love to be outside, so it was just a nice combination of being outside, you know, maintaining physical fitness, enjoying the environment, enjoying the animal, um, connecting with the dogs to you know, with um, commands and. and and just having them experience being outside, and and, and they make me laugh. I, just, they're just so loving, and, and, and every dog has its own personality. And whenever I've spoken to the owners, I always try to find out as much as I can in terms of, you know, what is it, what does their day look like? What are the routines? What are their expectations? What are what are their habits, what are they fearful of, what are they happy about, what brings them joy, what do they like, what are they nervous about, and so to maintain what it is that dogs used to, and and so a lot of people for different reasons, you know, they either need to have somebody come and walk their pet because they're busy at work, of course things have changed with COVID so much that um, a lot of people are at home, but even with that, it's at times makes it difficult for them to get the the dogs outside to, to get their exercise, and You know, and high energy dogs, larger dogs, they definitely need to have that exercise regardless of the weather. And sometimes people are just so caught up and busy with what they're doing. They may have some health issues themselves. They may have some, you know, may have to go out of town for business or family things, whatever's going on. And they just need somebody that they can trust that'll get to know the dog, take the dog out, have the dog explore and and do what they need to do. And there's a lot of... um. You know, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with, with taking somebody's dog out for a walk. It, it, it's so much more involved than, I'm just going to put a lead on the dog and take the dog for a walk around the block or up into the trails for an hour. There's a lot of responsibility. And so getting to know what what the dog is, like I say, comfortable with. You know, I have some dogs that are very fearful, say, of a bus if a, if a vehicle goes by. And you know, I need to know how to make that dog feel safe and and supported and, and not fearful. Sometimes a dog will get reactive towards somebody else stranger walking down the street. Perhaps a, a man with a black jacket and a hat on could, could make the dog nervous. And so it's really about just connecting with the dogs. And, and even things in terms of their recall, you know, if we go hiking up into the trees, you know, what is, um, you know, are they going to come back or, you know, can, can't even imagine the, or the responsibility of, of a dog going off into the bush and, and not coming back. But it, it's, it's, um, it's just been such a, um, just such a fulfilling thing to do to take a dog out in the trails and to watch how much fun they have running around, whether with other dogs or on their own, exploring nature, exploring the trees, and, and, and just watching what they have to do. And, and, and they're just they're, they're comical. They just have so much fun. And, um, and then I feel really good about the fact that I know I'm providing a service for the pet owner. Because it's taken one less thing off their plate for the day that they have to be responsible for. And, you know, to have the dog come back and it's had its exercise, it's had its, you know, engagement, it's been able to to do something instead of the dog suffering in the sense of, you know, having to just sit around the house because the owner's so busy that they don't have the time, even though they have the intention and even though they, they want to, you know, be able to get the dog out. but. It, it just It's just very satisfying to know that now the dog's needs have been met, the owner's needs have been met, there's a trust relationship between myself, the pet owner, the, the dog themselves, and whether the owner is at the house, with nine times out of ten, they're not at the house when I go pick up the dog. Um, the dog just knows it's, it's Nancy. I can go, I can
0: be safe, I can have fun, and I'll get back home again and, and I get to eat and sleep. <laughs> <laughs> how do you – I've always wondered when I see people walking dogs, how do you get the dogs to get along with each other?
3: Well, you know, it, it has a lot to do, I believe, with the energy of, of the person that's walking the dog. And I've had experiences over time, whether it's been with my own dogs when I had my own dogs or other people's dogs – where you know I'll come across a person and they'll be like, "Well, you know, oh, my dog, you know, my dog doesn't like other dogs, and you know, my dog's really stressed out, or my dog's this, or my dog's that." Well, actually, quite honestly, it's not the dog; it's the owner, because mm-hmm. if they're uptight and you know they're having hanging on to that lead, all that energy from that owner is running down their body into the lead into the animal, and, and and the dogs are very sensitive. I mean, they're, they're beings, right? They pick up on our energy. So if, if we're feeling nervous, anxious, unsure, uh, tense, angry, upset about something else, all of that's going to go into the dog. And I'm a big believer in space when it comes to dogs. So what I notice a lot is on the trails or the dog parks, whatever, and, People will walk with their dogs, all different sizes and breeds and temperaments, this, that and the other thing. And the people have the best of intentions because as they pass by each other, they just want to stop and chat and be respectful and friendly and interactive. But what they don't realize quite often is as they stop, all the dogs are now stopped. And you can have big dogs, little dogs, and some on leash, some off leash some very nervous, some with health issues, whatever else is going on. And the little dogs will feel intimidated by the big dogs and, and, the, and the dogs in general, all they see are the people's hips and waist. And so, it, so all of a sudden you've come to a standstill, the people are talking and oh, your dog's so cute or what about this or what about that? But they're not thinking about the energy and what's going into the dogs. And now some of the dogs are very close to one another And it can be very intimidating for them. So I'm a big believer in space. It's wonderful to be friendly to people and say hi and inquire about their dog. But keep the movement. Keep the space. Keep them going. So for me, with the dogs, I just think that space is really important. And and then watching the signals and the signs from the dogs as they start coming up to another dog, as they're coming up to another person, what are some of the behaviors that they're exhibiting? Are they starting to show that they're nervous? Are they excited? You know, and everybody has a different interpretation of, of what's acceptable. Like some people if a dog jumps up on them. they're like, well, who cares? It doesn't bother them in the least, but you never know somebody's experience that they've had with the dog. So they could have had a really poor experience in the past. So they could feel really intimidated or scared or nervous or unsure. Cause maybe they've never even been around a dog before. So it really comes down to, the calmer you are as the person walking the dogs, and the more confidence you have, and the more you pay attention to the signals of the dogs and what they're doing, and just keep movement, that is what I think keeps everybody just in check, you've got everything under control, and it's moving nicely, and, and paying attention, like just really being aware of what's going on, and, uh, and I, that's my experience anyway with the dogs.
0: How do you advertise or promote your business?
3: Well, I had in the past, um, I thought this was kind of cool. <laughs> I, because I was doing a lot of uh, trail hiking and stuff before COVID. And I had got these little flags, you know, marker, trail markers. And I had stapled my business card onto the trail markers because we have amazing trails around here. But quite honestly, even before I started walking some of the dogs in those trails, I'd, you know, I'd be walking along and be, now, did I turn left or did I turn right? <laughs> so I started marking the trails for other people. And, and then I just came up with this idea to staple my business card onto the, the flags. And, and it was very successful. It was like people, you know, I hope like, oh, this is a nice way to find you. And I've had some uh, long-term clients as a result of that. And so some of the other typical social media type of things, which is not my strength at all. And uh, word of mouth primarily. A lot of my businesses come from word of mouth. And I have people that I've I've been providing service for them for the seven years. And and they're just, they're they're the first to offer a testimonial to the satisfaction that they've had with with being able to trust me and, and the success that the animals have had with me.
0: Does anyone else have any questions for Nancy?
2: Yeah, I'm just wondering, Nancy, um, do you have a maximum number of dogs that you'll walk at any one time?
3: It depends, actually, Leslie, on the type of dogs, the breed and the personalities of the dogs. I can tell quite often ahead of time if they're going to be a good mix or not. So if I have the commitment, say, to the first couple of dogs and then other, uh, other people ask me to come in, it'll be based on the breed that's being requested to come in. Mm, and if mm-hmm. I think the ones that I have at the core, is it going to be a good fit? Mm-hmm. And I have had, um, I used to supervise in a, uh, a doggy daycare and I've done the thing when I've bought, you know, 20 dogs at a time, mm-hmm. not my, I've done it. It's not something that I really um, promote.
0: Mm-hmm. So for
3: my personal business, six is the maximum that I mm-hmm. like to have. And it's primarily for the sake of the dogs it, because of it it just becomes too stressful. I want them to have fun. I want them to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that comes into it as well is even transporting the dogs, like to go and pick them up and then get them to the trailhead. It can be really nerve-wracking for the dogs traveling with mm-hmm. other dogs if it's mm-hmm. not a good fit. And then for safety, You know, they need to be in crates depending on the vehicle that I'm using. And Mm -hmm. I have heard from people that I've walked their dogs that some of their experiences have been with other companies where, like, the dog walker has been a great fit for the dog itself it's been very successful but when they come to pick up that particular dog they open up the vehicle and they expect this new dog to walk jump up into a vehicle that's already filled with other dogs Mm -hmm. and it's very intimidating very so that's an important factor is getting the dog from point a to point b in a comfortable way and so that particular person stopped um, taking on the service because once they got to the trailhead, it was okay, but it was getting there and back, and I equated it to like, you know, as a as a person, I think we probably all had that experience. Say, if you're getting on a bus or a tour bus or some some sort of situation that's outside of what you're used to, and you know, and if you if a vehicle start like, a, let's say you're on a holiday or something all-inclusive holiday and the the big bus stops and they open it up. Okay, come on, jump on in. And if nobody greets you or says hi to you and you don't know who these people are, they don't speak the same language as you or they don't move over to make room for you and your suitcases or whatever it is, it's an intimidating feeling. Mm -hmm. So for the dog, the dog's going from the ground, climbing up into a vehicle to a whole bunch of dogs and people that they don't know and expected to come in and sit down and get settled so it it, it causes stress and it causes mm-hmm. anxious mm-hmm. so so that's one of the reasons i like to limit it six is comfortable yeah 30 20 i've done before but not really my thing mm.
2: okay great thanks nancy anybody I have a else question. Huh? oh
0: Joel, right. Joel has one. <laughs> um, I didn't catch uh,
1: maybe early you addressed this, but is it your own company or is it part of one of those, like the app type group? Oh,
3: friends? you're thinking of like Rover. Yeah. No, it's my own company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But you know, um, I also do work through Rover.com and that's the only company I'm familiar with. And, and I quite like them. They're, they're very, um, they're very supportive. They, they, they just cover all aspects of, they give a person who wants to have their dog cared for either overnight or a dog walk, um, everything you need. They, they just take care of everything. So they, the, the person that is hired on as a dog walker has to, you know, have credibility, has to be insured, you know, they, they take care of all of those factors. And, and if there's ever any sort of emergency, which I've never had an emergency, um, they're there for support as well, not only for the dog walker, dog sitter, but also for the the owner themselves, right? So,
1: so there is a value there for for those services. I oh,
3: absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know I, if
1: you were not with them because of them not having that type of value, and you're doing your own thing, or it's a supplement to what you're already doing. I guess.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, the second one is supplemented, and I I enjoy both. It um, the thing about the the uh, rover.com is like, let's just say for whatever reason, if something wasn't working out during the course of the stay, they will help not only the owner, but the sitter find an alternative to step in. So right. I and I, I just think that gives people peace mm-hmm. of mind. And, and, you know, private business is going to do the same thing, but obviously their network is is greater, right? It's, it's,
0: it's long, it's bigger.
1: Yeah. Thanks.
0: Okay. Thank you, Nancy. If I had a dog, I would trust you with it. But (laughs) 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 one experience that you shared about the bears and the dog. Oh,
3: yes. Yeah. I know it's interesting because I've I've had a, a number of bear encounters over the years and had them with my own dogs and then had them with the client's dogs last year. And, and it's really interesting, you know, kind of tuning into intuition and stuff, because we're up in the trails and a beautiful place. We go there all the time. And I had been thinking that I was going to listen to something in particular on my phone with my earpiece in. And, and then I thought, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to choose not to do that. So it was really, really present in terms of what was going on. And then two pops that I just love and adore. So I walk them a lot, and then they come and stay with me overnight a lot, and and they're very comical. Anyways, we're walking back, and and I could look down the distance, and I, and I saw something on the trail, and I don't know how far away we were, but quite a ways to start with. And I was like, well, "That's an awfully big dog," but I don't think it's a dog. So we got a little bit close, and I re- realized that it was a bear. And the and the pups have been off leash, and just in that moment, I just knelt down called them over, put them on the lead, and then I just continued to crouch down, watched the bear, which he was just beautiful, like his, like the, the, just the shiny, like the, the luster of his coat and everything. And anyways, he just sat there, looked at us. We stayed crouched. The dogs didn't respond or react or anything. And I don't think they even actually realized the bear was there. And the bear was in the middle of the trail crossed over, went to the other side, and I thought, okay, well, we're just going to sit here for a few more moments, because I don't know what the bear is doing, so we continued, and then, after I felt like it was enough time, we continued on walking past where the bear had crossed over, and, and didn't see the bear after that, but it just spoke to me about just being present with the energy. Because I was calm, they were calm. And we just gave it space, and then we continued on. And then, the, you know, and I saw somebody at the end of the trail, just let them know that there had been a bear. I don't know who knows where it was by that point in time. And then with the other couple of bear experiences I've had with dogs, it was the same thing. I just noticed the bear stopped in my tracks. We just stood still. And I think that part of that, too, though, is in the same way that I have a connection with the dogs, I think they've just some sort of energetic connection that just lets me know because I can drive down the road on the highway and actually this did happen once years ago it was driving down the highway uh, up into the interior and I was with my former husband I was like there's a bear and he's like "What? Well, we were off the Coquihalla I said there's a bear and it was way in the bush and, and so anyways he pulled over there was nobody on the highway we backed up I was <laughs> like there he is and he was tucked away over in the trees so, so so anyways, it's just some sort of connection. And and like I said, I think being tuned into the energy was what made it successful.
0: Oh, thank you for sharing. Um, Leslie, share with us about your business that you love.
2: Okay, well, this started out... Uh, you were talking about people that are doing non-traditional things. Um, I was very traditional for many years. I was a stay-at-home mom and part-time office worker. And I worked in offices for years. And all of a sudden, when I was 50 years old, I guess my husband said it was midlife crisis. I went through this whole thing. I'm not doing this anymore. So I went back to university when I was 50, uh, to the astonishment of everybody around me, Um finished out my degree and got my certificate in teaching English as a second language. And at the time, uh, the, the way to get into the field was uh, generally it was young people that got into it. And they would go overseas and teach overseas for a couple of years to get experience before coming back to Vancouver and working in an English as a second language school. Well, of course, being 50 years old and having a family, that wasn't on the cards. So um, I discovered online teaching. um, And I discovered online that there were companies just beginning to advertise. This is back in 2004. Um, Just beginning to advertise for teachers that would teach on the computer using a webcam. And um, I got connected with a company in Japan. Uh, Now, at the time, I did not know a soul with a webcam. So when I went out and bought one, I was the only person I knew that had a webcam. So the only way to test this webcam was to have a call with the gentleman in Japan that was running this online teaching company. Um, Skype didn't exist at the time we used MSM messenger, which was very unstable and the whole enterprise. I felt like a pioneer in cyberspace. You know, I didn't know anybody that was doing what I was doing. I didn't know anybody that had a webcam and I didn't know anybody that even had even thought that this might be something that was possible so um, I stayed with them from 2004, actually, until last year with the same company. Um, They did all the promotion, all the advertising, got the clients. And I was basically just a contractor for them. And I enjoyed it very much. Um, I got a job teaching in the classroom in a private language school in Vancouver. But I continued with the online teaching because... It was my retirement plan. I wanted to continue to do this after I quit classroom teaching. And I'm still doing it. Um, At the time, when I first started teaching online, um, it was a new medium. So everything I'd learned about teaching in my courses, I had to kind of twig and and jig and revise. Um, speaking and listening were a natural because this is a very conversational medium but when it came to reading and writing i had to think of whole new approaches so um, reading i would actually send the people a link to an article and we would read them in parallel they would have their copy in japan and i would have my copy here Uh, For writing, they would type things up in a Word document and email them to me, and I would do track changes. This stuff is all, you know, it's all very commonplace now, but it wasn't back then, you know. And basically, I had to find my own methods at the time. There were very few online resources. Now, if you Google anything, there are all kinds of websites about English grammar, English vocabulary, pronunciation, everything else, right? But there was very little back then. Um, Now, looking back, um, it's a very popular thing to do, you know, especially since COVID. um, There are a lot more people teaching online now. Uh, Zoom has become a very popular medium. Uh, We actually changed from MSM Messenger to Skype. And a lot of my students I still have via Skype. Um, but Zoom has brought a whole new dimension to this. You know, we can share screens, we can do the whiteboard, you know. So, again, I'm still learning. You know, I'm I'm learning what I can do with Zoom now. So the learning curve continues.
0: How did you advertise yourself after, after the company stopped um, supporting teachers? How did you go about advertising yourself for getting students? Uh, yeah, I... Um,
2: Most of my students are still old students from the company that they still wanted to take classes with me. Um, Some word of mouth. um, And I have some local students that I've picked up through word of mouth. I also have a Facebook page. Um, I've got some attention from that, but I haven't actually got any new clients through the Facebook page. But it's there for information if people want to check it, to look at my rates, that kind of thing. So basically word of mouth
0: for um, the students to talk to each other? Um,
2: No, I use Skype or Zoom, and it's one-on-one usually.
0: Very interesting. And so uh, if you were advising someone who was going to start off doing that now, what are the top two things you'd tell them to do?
2: Um, Well, be very, very active on social media. I mean, I could – I'm – not that adept at social media, um, but this is really where we live these days, right? So it's not just Facebook, it's Twitter, it's it's all the other platforms that are out there. Um, get, your own, uh, get your own podcast, perhaps, would be another thing. So, yeah, social media would be the big thing, right? And the other thing is to be prepared to teach in different time zones, um, if you teach in Japan, for example, which I still do, um, they're plus 16 or plus 17 hours, depending whether it's summertime or wintertime. So uh, right now it's almost two o'clock here in Vancouver. Um, it's actually six o'clock tomorrow morning in Japan. So that takes a little bit of getting used to. So, yeah, that's the other adjustment.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, does anyone else have any questions for Leslie? Oh, thank you for sharing. Uh, okay. Chris, with your book and adventures with the the audiobook, you want to share you' you're muted. Yeah. You want to share some of what you have done with that business?
4: Well, um, it's we actually are they they're printed books. We're just talking about moving into the audiobook format. Um, but uh, so with the writing group that I'm part of, we, because it was about writing, we decided that we would put together some of the, the writing that all of us did. And every year um, we decide on a theme uh, for that particular year. And this past year's the one the book that we've currently done is called um, "Together We Stand: Queer Elders Speak Out." So um, it gives everybody um, a, a broad base out of which to out of which to write, and then um, we 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 put them there. We self-publish, so we put them together, and then we self-publish. Um, with something called Lulu Press. Now, this is the first year because of uh, the, the pandemic that we haven't actually been able to have a regular launch um, until this year. We've always had a launch with a lot of people there. But this year, of course, nobody's having gatherings of any size. And so this year, we had to find a more creative way to actually do the launch. And we have been working with a um, woman named Jen Marchbank, who is a professor at Simon Fraser University. And she also, as a volunteer, she runs a group in Surrey called Youth for a Change. And so we've done some work together between our group, which is all, which are all older adults, and uh and, and the young people. And so um, she invited us to be part of their the the sfu gender studies women's women and gender studies 50th anniversary um and so that's how we we were actually able to do our book launch f- through them so um the books are currently available. Um, the, there's a, a number of copies at Little Sisters in, in, on Davy Street in the West End. And there's also copies uh, at Co-op Bookstore on Commercial Drive. So it, it's also possible to order through Lulu Press, but we think it's much easier to actually buy a hard copy here in, in the city and we have other we have other copies that we can if if the stock gets depleted in those two places we have more that we can fill their shelves with so <laughs> so it's so it's something that we've been doing um for for quite a number of years now uh, and it it I think it does a couple of things. One is it provides those of us who are part of the group, it provides us with a bit of an, an incentive and something to work towards in terms of having something to show for our work at the end of the year. And it also has given us a platform to actually uh, put some of our some of our stuff out uh, because i mean this year we haven't had that many opportunities because of covid but in many men in previous years we've been invited to go to lots of to to different places and different groups and do readings so it's kind of that double it serves for those of us who to write and but it also serves as a way of getting some of our a lot of its history um, and we, we did one that was called Bridge Generation, um, which, which from our perspective, was a historical piece in terms of those of us who are members of the lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual community. we We are the generation that began with no legal rights at all and have gone through the process of of um, political work and activism and so on to get to the place where we are now, where m- most of the uh, LGBT uh, rights are, we have most of the LGBT rights. We're still working on trans rights, um, but so we call so we looked at ourselves. We look at ourselves as the Greek generation going from the place where we had no rights to a place where we have many many rights. And one of the things that has been important for us is to be able to, to, to let people know that the rights that we achieved, none of them were actually given to us by the government. Every single right that we achieved, we achieved through, often through the courts, um, and and through through a lot of activism and, 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 and a lot of advocacy. Um, Nobody turned around and said, oh, it's unjust that same-sex partners don't have benefits. No, no, we had to actually take it to the courts to actually get the courts. It's interesting that companies, private companies, uh, some of the major companies recognized same-sex partners and, and extended um, extended benefits to partners of their employees way before we got them from f- through, through the public service, through the government. Um, that we had to actually actually fight for. So the writing that we do reflects a lot of our own uh, a, a long personal experience, Like the piece that I have in the book uh, in in Together We Stand is uh, a piece about when my partner and I were returning to Canada after having been living overseas and having and having to figure out how because my partner was not Canadian how we were going to achieve being able to continue living together because neither one of us could live legally in each other's country and so my my piece in that book um, deals with that whole issue, both on a personal level, but also on a political level. So it, it kind of brings stories together out of our personal experience but also bring them together in terms of in terms in terms of action and, and political activity and change that we've made. I don't know, um, of course, with this is a zoom for, for those of us that can see, but I'm currently wearing a vest that friends of mine made for me that has the badge of the Order of Canada. Um, I received the Order of Canada. Um, last year because of the work that I had done that I began basically in Canada to enable same-sex partners Canadians to be able to sponsor same-sex partners for immigration. Um, And so because because of the work that I did and the organization that I formed, now the laws have been changed. And so same-sex partners are able to... Uh, sponsor, a Canadian can sponsor their same-sex partner and also um, also heterosexual common law partners can be sponsored. Interesting tying in with what Leslie was saying about teaching English uh, overseas that it was very common for Canadians to go overseas, as you said Leslie, to actually teach um, English uh, and then of course meet somebody and enter into a relationship and then when their contract was ended they want to come back to canada and what what happened to their relationship their relationship was either 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 you either you had to end your relationship or there was no way. There was no way until we actually began um, bringing about this change. So the the anthologies that we've written, as I've said, bring together their, their, their writing in the sense that we have had instructors and we've learned uh, we've learned how to write well, hopefully, and uh, and and also it provides us with a forum to. Bring together a lot of our personal and and collective experience um, as members of the lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual community.
0: And I must say, you've learned a way to market, do marketing as well. Because yeah. last week when I was attending uh, yeah. the seminar, I think it was an hour and a half, and I thought, oh, it's going to be a long time. But they. Did cliffhangers. They're very, <laughs> you know, like when you used to go to the movies and they would, the plane would stop before it crashed and they'd say in two weeks. Well, uh, as Chris was telling this story about what was happening uh, with their train ride, uh, whether or not they were going to get stopped by customs or not. <laughs> She stopped, and she said, "And if you want to know, you can get the book at. So I thought uh, more than one person used that technique, and it was very engaging and a good marketing technique. <laughs> and so we're going to be welcoming uh, Quirky to have another lunch. They said that this was the first of several, so we are going to work out when we can have one of the book launches here at Powered by Age and that very engaging set of stories that people tell. Does anyone have a question for Chris?
3: Yeah, I'd like to know, Chris, about your um, uh, disciplines or practices in terms of uh, writing. Like, what? How do you? You have a specific commitment for writing? You know, a certain amount of time each day, or or what are some of your your routines that keep you inspired to keep writing on a regular basis? Yeah.
4: So we we are now, I think, in our fourteenth or fifteenth year together. Yeah. Um, we're of a group of more or less 25 uh, people, and over the years our process has changed. Initially, we had um, an artist, a writer, Claire Robson, who was our mentor, and so we she would we went through you know the the learning uh, learning different techniques in terms of character development, scene setting, the scene um what do you call the, the arc the yeah. story arc so we had we had a we learned a lot of those things but we also wrote from prompts so she would give us a prompt and then we would each write to the prompt and then we would share the writing with each other and then we also had some critique that we would provide for each other now as time has gone on um, we no longer uh, have uh, we no longer Claire's no longer with us for the last few years and so we have what we call we, we have a coordinating committee um, that actually works on on that actually sort of keeps the process moving forward. And so what, we, what we've been doing for the last couple of years, we've divided into smaller groups because different people were interested in different genres. And so right now we have a fiction genre we have a zine genre and then we have one that's called pan graphics. So some of the, the graphics are written, some might be uh, graphic graphic graphics, some are written so that there's so, but it's all memoir. And so what we do is um week one uh, of every month um we we have prompts the coordinating committee, whoever's facilitating, put forwards prompts for people to write to if they choose to. Some people like uh, there's some somebody's working on a site a sci-fi um story, and so she'll write stuff to, about her sci-fi story story i'm working on memoir so i would write to memoir so that's the first week that we all we all write something week 2 and week 3 we go into our small groups and in our small groups we you, we can we can read we can write we can critique we do whatever the small group decides that we need to do and um, then, on the last week of the month, we all come together as a larger group, and we read things that people have written through the course of the month. and we do we do critique of of people's writings. So we've changed um, we've changed our strategies. What people write and how much they write is really very individual and very personal, um, and uh, and I think most of us find that coming together every week um, has is what has kind of kept us moving, moving forward. I mean, sometimes I've written nothing, but the fact that I get together with this group continues to keep my, keep the idea of writing in the forefront of my mind and i think on a on a monday i think oh my god i didn't write anything this week because <laughs> tuesday is the day that we get together these days on zoom so there is there is something of, a, of an incentive and i know for my own self it's really helpful to have written something and then to be able to read that out to the group and get feedback um uh, that that that's been that's been for me that's been really helpful and and really motivating so I don't know if that quite answers your question but yeah
3: it does it's very interesting thank you for that I appreciate that a lot
4: and now suddenly my environment has gone
2: quiet. Mm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would support what Chris says about the motivation of belonging to a group. I also belong to a writer's group that meets every Monday. And, yeah, I keep writing so that I still have material to submit to the group when it's my turn, you know, whether I feel like doing it or not. If it wasn't for that, I might put my project aside for weeks on end. But that just keeps me going.
0: Yes. How does that work with what you're doing, Joel? um
1: yeah well, first of all chris congrats on the award the order mm-hmm. of canada that's uh that's an achievement and clearly you put in the the work and the effort for it so that's uh it's great to hear
4: thank you it took us 10 years to actually get the law changed
1: wow <laughs> one of those 10-year overnight success stories that's
4: right, right. yes that's right
1: <laughs> um yeah uh regarding what i'm doing in terms of uh trying to make some money <laughs> Uh, and I have to uh, I have to get off this call uh, to go catch flack from my supervisor for my latest rock and roll exploits, but this is what's gone on in the last little bit. So when I was doing the the stuff at Christmas time with the microphone and singing songs, uh, the Rat Pack stuff, <clears throat> um, I still had the microphone here, and a friend of mine uh, who I knew through my roommate who ran a bar on main street and uh, sort of basically a, a drinking friend at the bar. And he's a ex music producer while well, he's still a music producer, UK guy from the eighties, but hadn't done anything musically, but uh, saw me playing at, uh, at the bar. saw the band playing and was like interested in, in what I was doing as a vocalist. So that's a few years back now, but uh, he has business, up here and also in California in San Jose uh, on an environmental tech company. And he was down in his uh, studio in San Jose when COVID hit and wasn't able to come back. So he's been stuck over on that side of things since uh, well, since a year ago now. Um, And at some point, not too long ago, he started sending me these recordings of songs that he grew up with and like got him into music and into playing and, touring bands and being a producer and ma- mainly um, 70s prog rock pink floyd genesis uh, rolling stones that type of thing and uh, i've been sending these these songs up and i was using that same mic that i had up here to do our our uh singing sessions and laying down some vocals and sending them back And the the results are very good, Uh, surprisingly for the microphone that I'm using. uh, But his production is like off the charts. So he's really excited by what we've been producing here. And it's it's developing into a full album, actually. So I want to get the full album done here in Campbell River, kind of just to complete it that way. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm singing looking at the wharf here and it's kind of like it's for me it's it's where i got to get this work done for him it's just his collection of songs that he's interested in so i'm actually using it as part of my phd where i'm talking about packaging and brand value and how you take things and rework them into ways that create new value and so i've taken these songs and i've kind of repackaged them in a way that uh could make some money (laughs) now (laughs) here's the here's the conceit of it is him and i both know because we're music industry guys that uh, spotify and streaming apple music and all that it doesn't make any money for the artists it's it's just a shell game and uh you could see that kind of coming and so here we all are these, these two old music industry guys that uh, get together and making this music and we know it can't make money on streaming. So what, how do you make money with music in today's climate? Well, you have to sell something. You got to use the music to sell something or get it in a film or get it in on TV or whatever and have some rights that residuals get uh, sent your way. So (laughs) given that, uh, he's a, uh, wine collector and, and, booze collector and my roommate same sort of thing as a bartender so high-end drinks and stuff i invented this fictional distillery that uh we belong to or that we co-own or whatever right whatever the story is i haven't quite figured out all the details but the point is we've got this uh fictional distillery that we decided hey we need a way to sell more product and uh we should have uh our music that we all we love and and uh And that we're doing these versions of, and use that, create an album, and use that album to sell the music on TV or whatever it is. Uh, The story, as I said, is is in development, Um, (laughs) but it's effectively fake booze, right? It's not a real distillery, Um, and yet as we're putting these things together, it's kind of like, well, what would it take to do that? You Mm -hmm. know, what practically would be involved in? getting something like that up and running at least in terms of what I'm working on, on the business PhD, uh, in terms of how to use a simulation to understand a market and to understand the costs and understand how to maybe get something done before investing lots in it and then getting stuck. So it's kind of a case study exercise, but that has got us all engaged in, uh, in a way that I'm like, okay, I got to get this done now. And I got to get these songs out. And I got to like, <laughs> and none of the songs are my choices either. So it's kind of like karaoke where somebody's challenging you to a song.
0: <laughs> right. And
1: I'm like learning them. And they're, you know, they're coming out fresh that way. They're not, they're not stale things that I've, I've sang millions of times or not millions, but, um, and then the other interesting part about it, uh, getting back to, to Leslie and sort of that pioneering at tech remote thing is uh, neither of us have ever worked this way remotely. You know, you're usually you're in a studio, you're in a sound booth, you're making takes, you're making cuts and working it that way. And we're sending these things over the internet using Google Docs, using Trello, using organizational tools. And, uh, and it's working. Like it's, it's actually, we created a workflow where he'll send me the instrumental I won't really know the song, so I'll figure out where the words go and do a couple takes and send something back and then he'll send something back and then I'll figure out how I wanna work the song in terms of do I want it to sound just like the original or do I wanna play around with it? But but reasonably being able to do prototyping, if you will, of these these objects, right? Which are these, you know, songs. There's they're still objects, they're not physical things, but Um, but we still are working with them like these building blocks and objects that we're designing. So there's a lot of stuff that this fun little rock and roll exercise has uh, uh, inspired a bit in terms of the work that I'm doing, but also uh, um, insights into the work itself by being practical and by not being theoretical, which is my, my fear. And I feel it. I feel the institutional stuff with the university that, pulled down the theoretical lane and then, you know, where did I go? How do I get back to reality? So I'm trying to keep it real, but I'm keeping it rock and roll and, uh, and singing some songs. And also so I can get a CD for my mom so that she can play <laughs> in her car. <laughs> Just bought yesterday because the other car broke down and we had to get her new car. And now this car has a, a CD player in it. And so I'm like, damn it. It's going to get a CD. <laughs> and put in that car so you can hear the whole thing so oh and then also uh because i don't want to like well one be screaming away in the house um and also trying to get it to to versions that that can be put on a cd i'm like getting these vocal takes done while she's out on a walk or at church or, or getting groceries or whatever so it's like i got a time frame here I gotta, to do some screaming right now and knock some stuff down, and then I'll work on it. And so it's actually, it's it's been productive, uh, surprisingly, mm. in a in a way that I didn't see coming two weeks ago. Let's say, um, and maybe it'll make money. I don't know. <laughs> so, fictionally, it'll make money. In my case study, for my PhD, it mm. will make lots of money. That's right. <laughs> That's my story, sir.
2: Yeah, so i got a couple of questions, Joel. Yeah. Um, the first thing is you talked about this distillery, and I wasn't quite sure what the relationship was between the distillery and the music. Is it just a business model, or are you actually selling alcohol, or what's the story? Well,
1: well yes, is because the the way that, that music actually makes money now mm-hmm. is through product sales, by licensing it to some commercial or to... Um, use in, in 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 commercial cases mm-hmm. right you're not selling records anymore you're not you and, and artists can't go on tour anymore either because it was like well you're not going to make money selling records so you can make your money going on tour and selling t-shirts and mm-hmm. you know that's mm-hmm. that's how the game is for all the up up and coming bands now and and they're all lost and everyone's lost in the industry mm-hmm. so right now a lot and you'll see this actually you've seen bob dylan sold the music rights to his catalog for a huge amount of money and that's triggered a bunch of other major artists that are selling their catalogs off, um, to these, to companies that are going to use these catalogs for licensing purposes to whatever film, TV product placement, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it's like w- the reverse George Clooney. <laughs> so he's got a, a brand of tequila that mm-hmm. he sells through, the fact that he's a, he's a celebrity, right? I'm not a celebrity, but the, uh, the point would be you're using some sort of cultural piece, some sort of cultural object or whatever it is, whether it's a person, whether it's music, whether it's the location that you're selling to, uh, uh, sorry, to sell the music. So you find ways to license music for products.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah. like uh, Paul Newman's salad dressing kind of thing.
1: Yes. Yeah. So he, that's, he's selling his brand as himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but like uh, I'm trying to think like Led Zeppelin never wanted to sell the, to their music for commercials. And now you hear it in car commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's Led Zeppelin. But, um, but the, the, the point is to go, okay, how does music get sold? Well, it has to attach itself to something else that's being sold as a product and then taking some return from that thing um does that make sense
2: um well i'm still confused so there's actually two things here you could actually get the music used in movies in commercials so they're actually using your music that's one thing the other thing is this con, you know this connection with the distillery would it be like uh you know buy a bottle of vodka and get a free cd or something like that
1: um well like you've been to starbucks and you see the compilation cds that mm-hmm. are being sold there when you mm-hmm. go buy your coffee okay so those are licensed by starbucks to be able. yeah to okay mm-hmm. and i mean you can buy these you can stream these songs off of spotify and apple music and all that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but if you wanted to buy that physical thing that's sitting there that whoever the music publisher is cut a deal with starbucks probably for a lot of money To be able to sell those things, kind of Mm -hmm. those spot purchases, impulse buys that people do. How long that's going to last, we don't know, right? How long discs are even going to be a format. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm playing around with ideas, obviously. It's experimental, but there's some value in my arguments in looking at a physical bottle product on a shelf Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: comparing
0: that with a song as an item.
2: Okay, Okay, so it's more of a business model than anything else.
0: Oh, I've you seen know. that though with the gamification because I watched one of my grandsons six hours playing with uh, something where they were building a fort and it went on for hours. They built the fort and then with Sims, my daughter used to play Sims and that was like back in the day people would make things and people would buy their designs. It's a totally hypothetical building but people would pay 100, 200 a lot of money for a design somebody had made for a particular store. It was never going to be built, but people like that store. And I think it's some of the other games, people buy weapons, they, you know, people, kids and those are, in the gamification are making thousands of dollars over imaginary things that they built, but because people like it, they want that weapon or they want that cloth or they want that. So that's kind of what I'm picturing is that you have this distillery and it's an imaginary place but people go there they see it as a place that they enjoy the music
1: yeah it's a little different than that that's a completely virtual world space which does have licensing things going on like music gets licensed to those games or music in TikTok or whatever the apps are right that's where these guys buying up the rights are seeing that's where the money's going to come from is licensing these things to games and the platforms and film and tv or selling products And um, what I'm talking about isn't creating a virtual distillery that somebody can go to on the internet. It's more a market research planning exercise to understand how much it would cost to set up a physical distillery Mm. in this location and and Mm -hmm. use the simulation tools to get a better understanding of its design, of its costs, of the constraints that go on. Because ultimately I'm a, I'm a design prof that, um, has to look at those financial, physical, tangible, virtual constraints and then find that balance mm. that makes it a, a viable thing to do. Mm. Um, so, so what I'm doing is inventing this imaginary distillery, but I've got it branded in everything. And people have seen you know, a song that I send with the, the logo and everything, and they think it's a real distillery. Mm. And I went, oh, okay, well, what if it was? um and just kind of like imaginarily going down these paths to try and understand the problem space a bit better mm. and it's been valuable
2: yeah and i think we're all you know we're all struggling with you know what does it mean to live in cyberspace right
1: and and what does it mean to live between physical and digital mm-hmm. and uh and and a lot of my work also deals with well i said like packaging is part of it this idea of objects that act as containers. And you can see this understanding going on with what Luke and I were doing down in the storage room there, right? These containers that act as containers, but they're also things that hold other objects in them. And so part of what I'm working on is that digital to physical and physical to digital, uh, like a, a vinyl record is not digital. It's right, thing. right. But that vinyl record contains contains songs. Mm-hmm. So it acts as a container, right? And a case of beer <laughs> is a number of bottles in a in a container, right? So that 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 pattern of container nested inside another container, like Russian dolls types of things, uh, is is part of digital infrastructure and part of its culture. Uh, and um, I wouldn't say it's something that's not not recognized, but the implications of that model is what I'm working mm. on and playing it out in terms of business models, particularly.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah. And the other thing as I was listening to you is I was, um, I was reminded of sort of parallels with writing and, you know, the physical book versus the ebook. Mm-hmm. So do you see a lot of similarities there too? Well,
1: yes, yes. Because a part of this idea is okay. It used to be that you'd have vinyl records and then they would get turned into digital songs and then they would go up into the internet, into Napster and now streaming and all that. So we had these physical things that have moved into the digital space. Now what I'm doing with my partner on this project down in in California is actually starting in the digital space Mm. and building the songs in there. And theoretically, um, they could be taken out of the physical space and pressed on records physically to pair with uh, a couple bottles of rum and gin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you're designing an experience for that person. You mm-hmm. can listen to the, put the record on light a candle, whatever you do is part of that, that routine or uh, there's a word for it uh, ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, pour a glass of rum and whatever, So it's that experience is where all this is kind of going. People are are realizing they don't want to hold on to so much physical stuff. And Mm -hmm. actually the experiences go with you, right? You take Mm -hmm. them around Mm -hmm. when you go to a conference or like a, they'll dump all this merch and trinkets and pens and, you know, and it ends Mm -hmm. up staying in the hotel room Mm. because you don't have room for it. Right. So instead the the focus is more designing these experiences that people then go back and talk to the rest of their colleagues about, and it's a richer sort of dialogue than uh, than you would have with just showing them this pen. Mm-hmm. So that's in the area of what my work is about, and mm-hmm. uh, as I said, uh, it's kind of sidetracked me from what I was supposed to be doing from a boss. <laughs> 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 But he's a music guy too, and uh, and I think he'll appreciate how I've tied some of these things together that were kind of, well, how do we get this to work with this, and and he's a vinyl collector so he'll, he'll get that part of it. Um, even if he doesn't drink the gin, I will.
0: <laughs> well, okay, very cool. Okay. Uh, all of these things connect together really well. Mm. Uh, I, and we can be living contributors to your PhD project. <laughs> well, I'm
1: going to need some, uh, some test cases. I have to mm-hmm. like, that's what I'm actually designing right now is how is the study going to work? What's, what am I looking for? What am I trying to test? What am I trying to understand? And how do I design a study with focus groups? All the, all the dots and, crossing the T's Mm. of all that sort of the details of a proper study and getting ethics approval and all that. I might have to cut the booze side of it all (laughs) together, but uh, we'll see.
0: Yeah. I I pancake the presentation I was going to make, but it was on this transition from in 1989 Or 10 years, I worked for the Toronto Health Department as a health promotion consultant. And on a day when it was minus 28 below, I was returning to the health department after doing a workshop. And uh, it was yeah it was cold <laughs> and uh, i i was i slowed down to cross the intersection i had this defensive driving course and they told you you know when you're entering an intersection slow down wait for the car to pass so i slowed down but the woman behind me was obviously stressed out she hit my car and she knocked me off to the struts at the side and so i had a brain hematoma and a spinal injury and all of the way that i made my money then i work was through using my brain, <laughs> and write, reading and writing, and words would run around the page. Literally, the, the policeman at the hospital, I gave him my phone book, and I said, I know I have a friend in here, but the words are just running around. And so I had, uh, uh, they, they gave me a month of time to work from home, and I had uh an experience with a really terrible supervisor who didn't understand some of the things that we've discussed within this podcast about recovery from concussion. And I had to write this big report about a project that I had done. <laughs> and of course it was cuckoo. It wasn't all pulled together. And she said, well, uh, you've, uh, she's a stupid colloquium, but she said, uh, like you burnt your bridge because you didn't write this report. I gave you a month to write the report, but no support and so forth. So um I the next project that I worked on for the health department was to help communities understand when drugs were coming into the community. And we went out and we were doing evening workshops and I was carrying all this gear, but I had all these vials of pills to take. And so after Uh, six months, I wrote a letter to the medical officer of health and I said, it is totally contradictory for me to be going out talking to communities on how to detect drugs coming in. When To do this job, I've got these pills I have to take so that my body can move. I have these that I have to take. So my head, my brain, you're telling my brain that your body doesn't hurt. And then because these things destroy my stomach, I've got another vial of pills uh, for my stomach. So it is totally contradictory. And I went on a medical leave, uh, but in going on that, and I I uh, was working with it had begun because my you know your insurance only covers so much of of uh, of care from a chiropractor and stuff like laser care etc. And so I had. Been getting really beneficial effects from electronic muscle stimulation equipment. Uh, I certified on that equipment and began to get customers showing people how to to use the equipment. Well, I could see with you know the money that you get the difference in what you get when you have a salary and you get a third of that amount through disability. I could calculate the months that I was going to lose my house. I had three children. Was divorced and not having any state assistance or or, or uh, what do you call it uh, child support money. So I I about June I could say I'm going to lose my house by August. And I uh, wrote a proposal to to the company to just once a month go to the states and represent this neuromuscular sim, stimulation equipment. And the person said. Oh, But what's happening next month? And I said, well, this plan starts from August. And he liked the idea so much. He told the person, book a ticket, send it to Los Angeles. And I started working in Los Angeles, representing Canadian companies in um, fair shows, et cetera. But my head was still hurting and I was losing my children. I could take my children someplace and it would take me an hour to figure out how to get back to where I left them. And um, I had a, a... a fairy godmother i'll call her she wasn't my godmother from birth but she adopted me uh and this is a woman a woman who was the first black woman to win a tony on broadway and she had a, a dramatic company and in that company you had to learn to she operated like sammy davis jr you had to speak dance and act and i thought i could not sing <laughs> and It was in my head that I was telling deaf, And so when she was having a rehearsal and so she said, everybody stop. The altos are off. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, it's not you. It's the person next to you that you are following (laughs) that's off. So working with her started to really change my mind about some things. And then uh, I began to... Poetry was the form, the first thing that I was able to first start, just yell at life, be angry with life about, and my poems were in these notebooks. And then as I worked with groups and started getting involved with churches, I had my poems typed up, and they were in these things, that I would staple and and give. And then people started to buy them, and so I thought, well, this is pretty good, because I'm selling these staple sets. Uh, and then... Now I'm doing workshops, but one of the things from the workshops that actually took me to the 411 Center, I <clears throat> did, my poems got grouped into these different areas. I wrote this book kind of from the experience of what happened to me in Toronto. It's called From Pillows to Pillows, but it was a woman's tear-soaked journey from tear-soaked, tear-soaked pillows to pillars of strength and it had six sections it was um poems getting dealing with anger and social injustice i had a hundred of them poems dealing with the heartache or the blues i had a hundred of them <laughs> poems dealing with grief uh and anger and heartache tons of those but then the next three faith hope and love two hope two love One Faith. And it took me a number of years to move to the point where I published the book from these sections of poems that I would take and read at convalescent centers or read at different places and read it at, um, just read it a number of places. So this was my first thing that I actually began to make money with um, because from working with the woman that was like a mentor and having me memorize things because I said, I wanted to be in one of her shows. And she said, you have to memorize three poems. And these were classical pieces, classical Negro uh, poems. And some of those have a particular writing, rhyming pattern. And I said, I can't. And she said, can't is an animal too lazy to try. (laughs) And so through the desire to be a part of her workshop company and perform some of these things at schools I learned the poems from for her place but I also started memorizing some of the poems that were in this book because unlike uh the open mic that we have we've been an open mic group with Leslie where you can read with this group you cannot do any stand-up open mic unless you had memorized your work so poetry was both a healing form but it also became a place where I began to make some some money uh, I had another industry in, in injury but the experience of working with people both from seeing the transition that could come about with um, poetry visioning um, getting feedback as, as chris mentioned within our workshop group we would get feedback we would meet every saturday and every saturday you had to have a monologue and every saturday you would do your per, your personal piece and then you would get feedback and so the next week she would be looking for us to have made some improvements around developing something of our own as well as learning these classic things so i made a cd i made a cd for this book and it had um, nine poems on it. I had the experience, first I was hiring my own musicians and people would be late or they wouldn't show up and there's a guy named um, um, let's look at his name (laughs) oh my god uh, Mark Cargill. Mark Cargill was the principal violinist for Barry White. When you hear Barry White's music and you hear violins, he's either conducting the violins or he's playing the red violin. And he had a very ethical studio in uh, in Los Angeles. And he, even though he had people like Queen Latifah and some other people that had Grammy projects out of his studio, he adopted f- four or five people that were independents a year to be able to work in the studio. It's a studio that was like $200 an hour to use in to work in at $55 an hour. And he said, when you get ready to work on your event, don't tell them that they're doing it for you. Tell them that they're going to be working for Mark Cargill. So everybody was on time. I had people, six or seven musicians that played with all kinds of uh, artists doing music. But what... I've noticed now, as you said, Joel, um, I have the CD and another CD. I have three CDs, and they're on CD Baby. But um, I'm hearing them on YouTube, hearing them on other places. And I said, but I'm not making any money. They're on there. So they sent me 50 pages of printout. And it came to $96. There's seven minutes. There's someplace in Japan that has played my things the most. But it's like, since they pay by the minute, I have seven cents, you know, eight cents, six cents, two cents, three cents from the minutes that people streamed it. So it isn't right now the point that I'm looking at within my own music is how do I make money with it? I have three CDs. Mm -hmm. I have 20 songs. You know, worked in... I've been just before the pandemic. I was talking with Joel and Luke about how can I transfer some of this work uh, from from written books to audio books because now a lot of people are um, using audio books. Um, Audible used to only let you do an audio book if you had a book, but now you can do an audio book from a recording. So I'm really interested in looking at how do we. Um, Transform these things that we've made, like the the poetry and that Neil has put on our spin cycle on the PBA site. We have the spins, the the uh, stories, poetry, etc. Somebody is calling. I'm I'm sorry. I'm on a call. You have to call me back. I
1: apologize I have to uh, I have to go take a call
0: now as well. Two (laughs) thirty. So I think that just all of these things that we're doing, there's a point that they come together. And this work that you're doing is very important with just helping us see how we can make that tr- transition to the other forms and being able to make money. <laughs> well,
1: I can uh, I can pick up that conversation on a future podcast episode, Zoom episode here. So uh, yes. <laughs> signing off all. We'll see you uh, next week, hopefully. All right?
2: Okay, Okay, great. And before I leave, I've got the information on the book launch. It's called A Poetry of Place, Journeys Across New Westminster, Book E-Launch, March the 11th at 6 p.m., Pacific Time, and I'm sure that if you Google the title, which is A Poetry of Place Journeys Across New Westminster, you'll find information with the Zoom link. It's actually a public event.
0: Okay, that's good. And um, next week, we're going to be having a special uh, panel, and we're going to be celebrating the life of Shannon Gill, who was a uh, union leader. He was uh, an activists with uh, within the food industry, but an, mm. a, an activist and a person that's worked on a lot of the laws that uh, different elder groups have worked on. So he was part of the board for uh, 611 uh not six one <laughs> part of the board for the four one one senior center and uh, many some of the board members are going to recount the ways that he put his energy into challenging things. So even though it's um, Women's History Month, one of the things that we're looking at too is that women also celebrate the work that's been done by men and by activists that have helped everyone's cause. So that's going to be our podcast on next week, and so. We will continue uh, with the challenge to change and look forward as we champion each other with our businesses and the ways that this podcast might inspire other people who are challenging uh, the old ways of making money and being open to looking at ways to do things using their creativity, their tenacity, the, as uh, Leslie said, the things you love to do uh, I mean, sorry, that uh, Nancy said things that you love to do, that it's truth that if you pursue what you love and you are able to sit still, be quiet and uh, work on it, that that can be a way of making money for you. So goodbye to you. Thank you for tuning in and I will see you again.